You're listening to the Southwest Tech Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Southwest Tech Daily Podcast. I'm Fayaz Khan and my co-host is Robert Hillier. And this month we've got a sort of green theme. We're finding microplastics in mother's baby milk. We're finding microplastics in the fish that we eat to a, a, a huge quantity. So we're only really starting to understand now the full impact of having used fossil fuel plastics. That's Neil Morris from Kelpie. He talked to us about the amazing coating they make for food and drink product packaging from seaweed. We also have Tanavi Ethanundan from Data Duopoly whose business creates ways to get people to go places, whether that's a town centre or a national attraction. People won't travel into a high street or town centre if they don't realise what's going on. And yes, there are directory listings out there, there are websites, there are a plethora of tools that you can access, but it's quite cumbersome. So what we're doing is aggregating it into one solution and making it localised. Let's hear first from Neil Morris from Kelpie, who talked to Fiaza about how his company is using seaweed to change the face of traditional plastic packaging. I started Kelpie alongside my first co-founder, Murray Kenneth, when uh, the two of us, who'd each been working on different businesses, came together to realise the opportunity to use a, a biomaterial to replace fossil fuel plastics. We'd focused initially on seaweed, having each individually spent quite a time researching the phenomenal power of seaweed. And that, through our network, is what took us to Professor Chris Chuck at the University of Bath, who is now our CTO. In that first discussion with Professor Chris Chuck, Murray and I walked in with the plastic punnet and uh, low-density polyethylene lidding film that had contained fish from a nearby supermarket. Having eaten the fish and washed the punnet, we walked into Chris's office and put the container on the table and said the fish in this had a fridge life of about eight days. But the packaging that it came in has a total life of around a thousand years. We all thought we could do better. And immediately from that moment on, the three of us started to recognise the opportunity, both as a commercial or business opportunity, but more important than that, as an opportunity to address the horrors of marine plastic pollution, that creating a, a truly world class biomaterial to replace fossil fuel plastics would offer us. Now, you mentioned seaweed, but... Uh, you said you're starting at seaweed. What other products can you use to create these degradable plastics, for want of a better word? There are a number of what we call feedstocks that are in use now, and a growing number of companies around the world, some of whom, like us, start with seaweed. Others start with um, farm waste, like straw or bagasse. Others with um, pea protein, for example. And so this new wave of biomaterials producers and innovators worldwide, where seaweed is probably the most commonly used feedstock, are all adapting the uh, materials drawn from those feedstocks like seaweed to address uh, commercial opportunities. So uh, one of our competitors, Sway, based in California, is using seaweed biopackaging to develop a poly bag for fashion or clothing retail worldwide. Another competitor, Zampler, based in Cambridge in the UK, is using pea protein to particularly focus on encapsulation of uh, vitamins and other uh, nutraceuticals. Here at Kelpie, we use seaweed to develop biomaterials that are focused on the needs of two huge sectors and huge users 
of plastic packaging. And that's the food and drink sector and separately the cosmetics and personal care sector. I'm really interested in this. I'm seeing more and more of it on my Instagram. The algorithm just targets me with a lot of this. So I've, I've noticed that there's a company in Brazil and they're making bags out of mango skins. And uh, there's another company who's doing shoes and a whole bunch of things using um, cactus plants and they're creating leather like basically cactus leather and uh, there's another company in India that are using bamboo so they just sort of crush the bamboo and then they create this material which is uh, a bit like cardboard and sometimes d- depending on w- what they're using that could also be a, like a plasticky sort of material uh, and so you know there's there's a lot of this out there I mean is there information sharing going on to ensure that you know if this is truly for the sustainability of the planet how do we make sure that we just continue to do this and 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 change people's minds about fast fashion for example absolutely so I was uh, at a, a client conference uh, recently in France and uh, alongside me on the platform was a company that's making artificial leather out of uh, olive stones from the olive oil industry, which cast those away as as a waste product to date. And it's a great way of valorizing or making good value out of waste product of a part of the food industry. And at the same conference was another company uh, creating artificial rubber replacement from the bark of willow trees, again, grown at large quantities in Scandinavia for timber, but with the bark cast aside and used merely as compost, instead finding a different higher value output. So our approach is to use seaweed. The reason that we choose seaweed is because it requires no fresh water and no land to grow, obviously, but it also grows very prolifically. Kelp, the seaweed species from which we get our name, kelpie, can grow up to half a metre a day in the right conditions. And kelp is just one of a number of huge number of seaweed species which we can draw our raw materials from. But uh, together, those seaweed species sequester huge amounts of carbon dioxide as they grow. And so they are in themselves part of a potential solution towards sequestering carbon dioxide and mitigating the impacts of climate change. So how does it work exactly? Do you guys um, have, I don't know, seaweed farms and then farm the seaweed and then start creating the products? Or what's the process? We're not involved in seaweed farming ourselves. We leave that to other specialists in the seaweed farming industry is growing very strongly at the moment, particularly across Europe and Africa from its original basis, predominantly in East Asia. So we pick up the output of that seaweed farming, either as dried and milled seaweed or downstream from that, the output of a biorefinery. Imagine a much, much smaller version of the sort of refineries used elsewhere in industry. And from that uh, biorefinery, we obtain the carbohydrates from seaweed that the at uh, the beginning of our process, the raw materials that we start working with. Just actually creating the product, what is that actual process? I mean, and, and how did you come to to think, okay, you know what? We're we're gonna use seaweed and we're just gonna find a way to turn it into a cup. How how did that happen? Around the corner from the office I'm talking to you from today is uh, uh, our chief scientific officer, Dr. Stephanie Federley. She runs a team in the lab that has spent now uh, three years first developing our material and then proving its application in a variety of purposes for the food and drink industry, for cosmetics and personal care like shampoos and conditioners. 
And the kelpie coating applied to the substrates is what gives the barrier performance properties. Those are the ability for our material then to contain liquid substances, to contain highly acidic substances like uh, chopped fresh fruit or greasy substances like, uh, like conditioners, uh, substances with surfactants like shampoo or with enzymes like laundry liquids. And together, our material is able to provide a barrier to those, which allows a coated paper sachet, for example, to replace a polyethylene sachet or a coated fiber or card tray to replace what a supermarket would currently use a rigid polyethylene or PET tray for. So right now, one of the projects that we're working for, and this is our one of our biggest client projects at the moment, is for a fresh fruit and vegetable uh, packaging consortium called Fresh Packed, where the leading UK supermarket Waitrose is the end client, looking at how our innovative approach to packaging might replace the fossil fuel plastic packaging used to package mango, coconut, papaya, or more closer to home, strawberries or blueberries with a coated card and coated paper solution that would be uh, capable of of providing the same kind of oxygen barrier as provided by the uh, polyethylene and PET packaging but in a material that's entirely and fully biodegradable that means uh, it can be composted it can be recycled as uh, paper and card and so our coating does not impede the paper or card recycling process. But also, critically, if it were washed out to sea, it would biodegrade naturally and fully, leaving no microplastics and no toxins behind in a matter of weeks or months, depending on the marine conditions in which it's found. And that's the critical component for us, the ability to combine the kind of barrier performance properties required by our clients with the biodegradability that ensures that ours is not only a fully sustainable but a fully climate responsible product. I love that so if if you had a product let's say we I don't know there were apples and they were wrapped in this kelpie plastic th that plastic would buy I'm calling it plastic I don't know what to call it but it would biodegrade in a few weeks or a few months depending on the the thickness or whatever it was made up of is that correct it, it is correct we uh, don't refer to our materials as plastic it's a very very thin coating applied to paper card or fiber and so the reason that we've gone down this route, rather than producing a film that would look a little bit more like a, a plastic film, is because that allows the paper or card to do their heavy lifting for us. We need a smaller amount of our material to coat it. And I'm talking at less than a millimetre, much, much less than a millimetre of our coating is sufficient to provide a water barrier that matches some of the performance of fossil fuel plastics without the consumer having to peel away the coating from the paper or card at all. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I, I remember about 10 years ago, I did a story with um, a company in Brazil where they had created this film to cover um, fruit, so, but you couldn't see the film and you, and you could eat it. And so a lot of places in in Dubai were using it where they would cover their apples or the harder fruit though apples and and maybe oranges and maybe um, mangoes and so it, it kept the fruit clean 
And you could also eat it because it was made out of something, I can't remember what, but something edible and also very healthy and it was fine. Um, and I thought that was like, wow, the height of amazingness. But this is really, really incredible. And I wonder, I mean, I'm, it's it's so pleasing to hear so that someone like, you know, a company like Waitrose is starting to to take this on board. But how do we convince bigger corporations that this is the way forward? I mean, you still go into shops and you still see people using polystyrene. Why is this happening? It is the weirdest product. Why are we still? Why do we still have polystyrene? And how do we get people to stop doing it? It's a very good question. There is a wave of new biomaterials producers, of which Kelpie is one, who are producing the kind of performance in packaging that has previously only been capable of being produced by fossil fuel plastics. So whilst we had biomaterials around uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they were uh, they claimed to be compostable, but they weren't truly compostable in most most ways. They could be put into the food waste, but in almost all cases would be ripped out of the food waste and sent to landfill or incinerated uh, in order to try and reclaim some proportion of the energy in them. And so it's only really with this new wave of which Kelpie is at the forefront that we've been able to create the kind of materials that really interest large multinational companies. And it's those companies that we found not only welcome, welcoming the Kelpie approach, but actually coming to us and asking for us to adapt our core materials to meet their specific requirements. So in the last year alone, we've worked for a major coffee brand who required us to prove our materials to work effectively in 100 degrees centigrade water, but under the kind of pressure that's in a domestic coffee machine, a four bar pressure. Uh, likewise, we, we are working with uh, one of the largest cosmetics and personal care companies in the world, showing how our material can work in their very strict packaging environment. And the reason that these huge companies are coming to us now is because we are amongst the first to be able to demonstrate the kind of performance they require, but in a sustainably sourced, renewable uh, material like that derived from seaweed. Oh, I see. So so it's it's some of it is is a performance issue that maybe people are using polystyrene and other unsustainable products because the performance is still not as as useful as something that is plastic etc. I mean I noticed that sometimes I take my children to McDonald's and now McDonald's have started using paper straws and they get very frustrated with this and they would rather just drink it out the cup because the straws are, they just kind of like melt in your hand. And I suppose with your products, that doesn't happen. And that means that, you know, it's better for the consumer. That's right. And whilst Kelpie is not focused on straws, it, it would still be a, an interesting use case around how a material which could provide the uh, waterproof barrier required in those sort of situations could still be used. I think one of the other reasons why adoption has been uh, less widespread to date is around cost. There is still a, a premium in using the sort of sustainable approaches that I've just described. And it's only some of the more forward-looking clients that are prepared to uh, take on that additional cost in the short term. I always liken it to uh, the way that we've, we are gradually decarbonizing the energy sector. If we'd frustrated innovation in wind power or solar power when they were first introduced because they cost more than fossil fuel power generation, then we'd never have reached the point that we're at today where wind and solar actually produce uh, power more cost effectively than fossil fuels. 
and replacing fossil fuel plastics is on the same curve. Right now, today, there is definitely a, a green premium in using sustainable materials, but that green premium will ebb away over time. And we're certainly targeting parity with fossil fuel plastics in due course, but we won't get there this year. We won't get there next year. It'll take a while before we start to see the kind of uh, material performance combined with the end of life, like biodegradability and recyclability, but most of all around marine safe and compostable solutions that's in a material that's as uh, cost effective as plastics. We've had, after all, 70 years of adopting and refining our approach to plastics. And uh, it's the horrors of marine plastic pollution that we're facing now because it has become such a cheap and such a ubiquitously used material. Yeah. And I actually, I think the consumer, the end consumer would be interested in paying more. I mean, for a product that was going to be better for the environment long term. I mean, if you've given two products and one is a pound more than the other one and you know that one, the, the, the more expensive one is biodegradable, I'm sure people would go for that one. I mean, I, I tend to do that because I feel like it's, I, I don't know if maybe we should also create like a more consumer related education to to show the importance of this for our long-term survival on the planet because otherwise you know we're just going to keep using this one-time product which is terrible and killing everything in its sight really so it's very frustrating education is definitely part of it and and there's a lot of evidence from surveys to show that you're quite right that consumers are willing to pay more and we're not talking about pounds more because that's not what it will cost it will be pennies more on packaging and there is a lot of evidence to suggest that consumers are, are ready to pay that sort of premium to have truly sustainable packaging. Right now, there's more and more evidence coming out. There have been microplastics found at the top of Everest in the Arctic sea ice and at the bottom of the Mariana Trench at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. We're finding microplastics in mother's uh, baby milk. We're finding microplastics in the fish that we eat to a, a, a huge quantity. So we're only really starting to understand now the full impact of having used fossil fuel plastics for some ridiculous use cases to contain foods for as little as hours or days, even though their packaging life, uh, uh, the packaging itself can last for hundreds or even a thousand years or more. So it's right now that we're starting to realign the use case with the materials that we're using. And part of that realignment is around an understanding of the value of the packaging and not just going for the cheapest possible material. I certainly feel personally very strongly that we do need to start to understand the implications of our packaging choices, much as we understand more and more the implications of our food choices. 100% and our clothing choices. I think this is like something that affects us in every single aspect of our life. I'm still waiting for the kelpie, kelpie coated paper straw so that, you know, there's no there's no disintegration during the drinking process. I'll, I'll take that away and raise it with the product group. As I say, it's not been an area of focus for us now, although there are other companies elsewhere in the world who are looking at uh, improving the drinking store using seaweed and other natural materials. Our focus remains on the very high volume of single-use packaging that is used in the food and drink sector, particularly to package goods that you might pick up from the supermarket, 
or the ready meal sector. And then alongside that, the cosmetics and personal care, the huge amount of packaging that's in all of our homes now, whether in the bathroom or in the kitchen, that's packaging shampoos and conditioners, that's packaging the kind of household goods that we're using to a significant degree. And all of that is where Kelpie's own materials are particularly uh, valid in proving that you can combine a material with the right kind of performance barriers to uh, with a material that's also fully compostable, biodegradable, and where the packaging can be recycled as paper and card after use. You know, when you buy packaging sometimes and it says this bottle has is 100% recycled, but actually it's such thin plastic that it can't actually be re-recycled. So what do you think is better to use a product that's biodegradable or to use a recycled plastic product? I think the answer to that lies partly in, in us understanding the way in which recycling has uh, formed part of our thinking, what kind of products that we recycle at the moment. So right now in the UK, uh, on average, around 70%, 70% of all our paper and card packaging is recycled in the UK. Uh, if you look at plastic packaging, uh, that averages around 10%, much, much less for thin films and more for soft drinks bottles, for example. So whilst it's certainly true to say that uh, recycling uh, plastic can provide some benefits, when you look at, for example, the carbon emissions throughout the entire process, producing plastic in the first place, the fact that we're mining, extracting oil and unlocking the carbon that was locked up underground and then the carbon emissions throughout the process right through to and including the recycling then it's still a very challenging business case across so many materials taking a uh, paper or card packaging uh, applying kelpie's coating to make sure it can provide a suitable packaging for food and drink for cosmetics and personal care and then allowing that card or paper packaging to be recycled availing itself of the kind of recycling rates that i've identified there is in our view by far the strongest solution yeah god you know it's really frustrating as well because so i buy um cartoned milk because i feel like that's much better to use than to use a plastic bottle of milk however for some reason in this country and not in South Africa where I grew up, because in South Africa you have you buy carton milk and you can just open the milk from the carton. Whereas here, there's like a little plastic knob that you can you have to open up. And I think, what is the point of that? The whole point of buying carton milk is that you don't use plastic and then you put a plastic cap on there and now I have to use it. It drives me insane. There, there are a number of packaging solutions that have been developed because of convenience, cost or uh, performance where uh, the solutions were not developed with a, a circular economy in mind, were not developed with recycling in mind. So some of those cartons comprise laminates of uh, plastics and uh, card that are very, very difficult to recycle, for which there are very few facilities that can effectively recycle those in Europe. And so we've created a, a new generation of problems in our use of those, even in pursuing something that wasn't solely plastic. And sometimes uh, it would have been better to have stuck with a single monomaterial in plastic. But again, I come on to the future solution, which will be materials like Kelpie's coating on card and paper that'll provide the right outcome. 
Neil Moore, CEO of Kelpie, who are based in Bath, and also one of Tech Southwest's scale-up ones to watch. We actually talked about that in the last podcast, so if you want to know more about that program, please go and check out June's podcast. Yeah, and you can see where they are one to watch. I really enjoyed that. I'm glad to hear. Now, let's hear from Thanavir Thinandan from Data Duopoly. I started by asking her about the research that has come from her Explore Tech. One thing we found is that people don't really realize how many exciting things are going on in the high street. The pre-pandemic mentality hasn't come back and we're still fearful and thinking that shops and businesses are closed. But that couldn't be further from the truth, that things are thriving, events are happening. So what we're doing is trying to showcase what's going on to give people a reason to travel inside the high street and spend, explore and spend time. And secondly, from a bus operator's perspective, bus travel is a third of the level pre-pandemic, which is quite shocking. So again, we want to give people a reason to get back into the high street and create that buzz that we all love in our town centres. I love that, actually. I think definitely we should be using much more bus and train travel within town centres. So you guys have come a really long way from when you started because initially, you know, you were your app was about, you know, monitoring how people were using um, various leisure areas, you know, museums, etc. And tourist hotspots. And now you've branched out into something a bit wider and something I think much needed. Tell me how that that transformation took place. I would certainly say it's been a journey and a half. I think with any startup, Ronan Keating's Life is a Roller Coaster is the backing soundtrack. Um, One thing I would say is we started off in the tourism industry, very much driven by a need of seeing that venues understood how many people entered a venue through ticket sales, but didn't understand necessarily how people were moving inside the venue. So seeing what Waze had done to the automobile sector with that crowdsourced location and showcasing those busyness, I wanted to apply that to the leisure industry. Fast forward a few months, launching the business at the end of 2019, a little thing called the COVID pandemic happened. But I think that was a really exciting time for the strategy of the business. Certainly not what was happening, but for the strategy, because it made us rethink what we were doing on our application of this technology. And it can work on a much wider scale. And that's where we started working with Falmouth Town. We've released Explore Falmouth, which is really exciting and trying to push people around the high street, trying to drive that increase in spend and showcasing all the fantastic events that's on offer. And now working with the transport operators, it's come through conversations, speaking to as many people as possible and finding out what's the gap between people actually taking a bus route or train route to their destination rather than hopping in the car. And more often than not, our user research is found it's because they don't have a really easy way to say, I want to get there and this is the route I take by public transport and I can just use the ticket I already have on my phone. And that's where we allow the transport operators to compete with the likes of Google and CityMapper with our API. (laughs) Um, How are we going to get people to do that? I mean, what's your plan? (laughs) Well, it's certainly a big picture. And I would say Data Duopoly plays a small part, but a really important one about awareness. People won't travel into a high street or town centre if they don't realise what's going on. And yes, there are directory listings out there, there are websites, there are a plethora of tools that you can access, but it's quite cumbersome. 
So what we're doing is aggregating it into one solution and making it localized. So you're finding out what's going on near you and how to plan your route via sustainable transfer options, which I think is really exciting because it's a lot easier than you might think about getting from one place to another when we try and show you what's near the transport hubs in particular. Are you guys working with Google in any way? I know you mentioned Google earlier, but I mean, is there any direct working with them? Because I actually find sometimes if I'm don't know what I'm doing and I, I use try and use those certain bus apps in the Southwest. I find it really cumbersome. Like you said, it's very difficult to use. But when I go on Google, they do give me quite decent route planners. And so then I would rather use the train or the bus when I go on Google to, to decide my route. Um, so what what are you guys doing to, to make things a little bit easier, like the practicalities of it? Definitely. So unfortunately, we're not working with Google yet, but we would absolutely love to. And where I would say we're different to your usual Google map planning route is that we're hyper-local. So we can put routes in that are suitable for accessible routing, the cycle-friendly parts, and we work directly with the council where possible or business improvement district, really to drive that place-led and community-led exploration. Secondly, we want to keep people on that transport operator app. So you can plan and book your ticket. You already have the ticket on the app, why switch to another one? So we feel it's a way for transport operators to compete with the likes of Google to keep people on their platform when they're planning their route. But you're right, in terms of the multimodal transport, that's where Google and CityMapper really shine. But we're targeting the people that know that they have a bus pass or they've got a season ticket. So we're trying to encourage them to use that a little bit more. And I love the fact that you want to encourage people to use the cycle routes or know where those things are. That's really important, I think. Definitely. And I think there's been so much good work about trying to create more awareness. The change of the highway code is certainly benefiting cyclists. But actually, there are some really lovely cycle trails for leisure activities. So just highlighting that to people might make the difference between thinking, you know what, I could potentially take my cycle um, on a train, drive uh, rather than drive somewhere, go on a route and then come back by public transport. And that could be a huge impact in terms of reducing CO2 emissions on our roads and actually helping people make those greener choices, but actually make it a lot easier to do that. I love it. That's absolutely amazing. Now, previously you did have a co-founder and now it's just you. How's that going? It's been a journey. As with every business, there are always changes as you go through the business cycle. I've got a fabulous team around me. We have onboarded a fantastic UX designer who's been working on our product iterating. And I would say Explore It has never looked so good. Um, we work with a fantastic development team developing our scalable technical stack. And we've been working with marketing agencies really to promote the launch of Explore Falmouth in particular. Working with a great team around me has helped me on this journey and it wouldn't be possible without them. Bringing together all those skill sets to achieve the vision of can we drive location-based exploration and gather that data in a truly anonymized way so we can make better improvements in our public transport in our spaces. And that's what we're trying to achieve. That's absolutely amazing, Danavi. It's so wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much, Faith. And thank you so much for inviting me. I think it was so lovely last year at the Tech Southwest Awards when we all met in person. 
Um, so really looking forward to what the year ahead holds. I'm really looking forward to the Tech Southwest Awards this year. And um, last year you guys won an award, didn't you? I think it was, was it Women in Tech? Yes, it was. Absolutely phenomenal evening um, under the Concord in Bristol, which is fantastic. Oh my God, it was such a wonderful night, wasn't it? I mean, everything was good. The food was so good. Those tacos were insane. I mean, <laughs> oh my God, they were amazing. And yeah, that setting was incredible. Definitely, definitely a lovely way to sort of round up the year as well. A great high. Yeah, I can't wait. Actually, it's it's quite exciting with the Tech Southwest Awards because every year we don't know when when it's going to be and we don't know where it's going to be. And we don't know what's going to happen. And so I don't know how they're going to top it this year, but I, yeah, I can't <laughs> wait to find out. Definitely. That's Tarnavi Ethinundan from Datadropoly, winner of last year's Women in Tech Award from Tech Southwest, of course. Uh, and Datadropoly has secured funding from Innovate UK and from the Department for Culture, Media and Sport for its work with transport providers. Yeah, that was just uh, last month, I think. So that was pretty interesting. I love talking to Tarnavi, by the way. She's so, so cool. Yes, she gives a good interview. Yeah, she does. And actually, minimal editing, which was amazing. So thank you so much for listening. That is all we have time for today. Yeah, remember to subscribe to the Southwest Tech Daily Podcast so you can get notifications every time there's a new episode. And get in touch on the socials. We've got Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. So just look for at SW Tech Daily. We would love to hear from you. And goodbye. Bye. The Southwest Tech Daily Podcast.